Hello, this is Mini Dio, and you're listening to the Salsoa Network podcast, which brings you unique and captivating stories from members of South Sudan's diaspora. I guess today is Nyamal Tudiel. She also goes by Mom, which means peace in rural language. She's a community activist, co-founder and executive director of Nia Eden Foundation, adjunct professor at Arcadia University, among other notable initiatives. Welcome to the podcast, Nyamal. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. How's your day going? It's going well. And yours? It's going well. I'm just getting started. Uh, uh, you are in the, the East Coast time and I'm here in Arizona, so it's a three hour difference. <laughs> I know. Sorry for having you, having to have you wake up early to do this since I'm a bit busy, but I'm very privileged and honored to be asked to share my journey on this platform. I'm always um, honor when I could be able to converse with my people. Um, it's, it's different when you're talking to somebody from home, you know, uh, you're talking to your relative, right? Rather than talking to those that may be in different outlets uh, and then in me giving my narrative to them so that they can change their perception of what South Sudanese are or what black women are. But for me being on this podcast with you, it's like, oh, I'm talking to my little brother. <laughs> Absolutely, thank you for that. And actually as you know, to start our conversation, well, the reason why uh, I invited you to program, as you said, uh, the goal of this podcast and the Soul Network uh, initiative in general is to connect and, and, and engage with a select member of South Sudanese who are passionate about certain issues and are engaged and involved in our community, but also in the larger, uh, you know, U.S. society or wherever they might be. In diaspora, whether there's Canada, Australia, or the UK, and any other places outside of South Sudan. You have an incredible background, not only as an academic and, and a current student of the field, but you also engage in organizations such as the Aided Foundation, which we will discuss more about that, and your activism on uh, immigration issues and, and those of displaced persons. So we just want to uh, to invite you to the program and hear about your perspective. Uh, about your perspective. Uh, but to start off, I mean, I, you know, the assumption for me is that, you know, every member of the South Sudan diaspora that I speak with, you know, has their story that starts from South Sudan or at least somewhere there in the East African region, right? If you were born in South Sudan, then you might have been born somewhere in Ethiopia or Kenya, and that might also have been you know, so to start off our conversation, if you can just uh, introduce yourself and also just segue from there to how your journey started from South Sudan or somewhere in the East African region and how you ended up in the U.S. Oh, well, thanks again. I like the fact that you actually mentioned where my story began. Um, again, my full name is Nyamal. I do go by Mal, which is... Uh, the masculine version of my name and it drives a lot of our people crazy but hey uh, <laughs> know that, yeah so mal means peace or in Thugmunjang is dor so dor, it's an animal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so yeah and see i'm learning my, my people <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, so my journey starts, uh, started in Ethiopia, actually. So my parents left uh, Nasser, uh, that's our homestead, where my, my bloodline is from, it's uh, Nasser, South Sudan. And so my family left uh, during the second civil war, as we all knew, and migrated to Ethiopia. And that's where I was born. I was born in Gambela and uh, spent a little bit of my formative years in Iteng refugee camp. 
as my father was uh, in the conflict resolution world, right? I guess it's, it's genetic. Um, my father was a judge. Um, he helped make sure that um, conflict was resolved in, in Uteng at the time. And so when 91 happened, when Mengistu was being overthrown by Menlis, during that war, we um, walked back to Nasser. And that was the only time I've ever been to South Sudan. It was the only year I've ever spent in South Sudan. And a year later, we walked back to Ethiopia where we lived in Addis until we were able to get a resettlement uh, into the United States. It's, it's incredible. So you were you were born in South Sudan, but then uh, uh, moved to, you were born in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. I was born in Ethiopia and then went to South Sudan during the war. Uh, and I only spent a year of my life in South Sudan, actually. Um, and I was hoping that when I was done with with my undergrad, actually, that I would go to South Sudan and really explore the land, explore where my bloodline is from, my genetics, my my um, heritage. But unfortunately, our own civil war just kind of put that to a halt. So I'm still yearning to go home and and then really see us for who we are um, and not so much from the stories that we hear from the diaspora or our own diaspora and people going home and fabricating a lot of the things. Absolutely, yes, because I was actually going to ask you, uh, having said that you were born in Ethiopia, was able to go to South Sudan briefly as a child and, you know, uh, have been longing to go back uh, ever since, but because of the conflict unrest back home, I was going to ask you if you've been uh, to South Sudan. Uh, I was actually speaking with uh, Rebecca Dang. I did an interview podcast episode with Rebecca Dang, and about her, you know, even though she left South Sudan young and lived in Kaplan refugee camp as a child, she was able, you know, after coming to the U.S., she was able to go back to South Sudan and explore different regions. And she just, she had a difficult time describing it exactly how she felt like, but it was that, you know, uplifting, sort of rejuvenating feeling just to be back. And, you know, I hope, you know, one day uh, things get better back home in our country and we will be able to go back to South Sudan and reconnect the dots and, you know, relive that experience and see what it is like, you know, to be back home. We were actually planning on going this year, but coronavirus hit. Um, coronavirus again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as as we will dive into the Nya Eden Foundation, that's one of the organization as my give back organization that I've co-founded with uh, Kuth Will. And uh, last year we went to Ethiopia and, and, and did some work there. And so this year we were going to go to uh, South Sudan. Um, but coronavirus hit, so uh, we have to reinvent, uh, replan. And um, we're working on definitely seeing what 2021 has to hold and see how we could be able to navigate not only Ethiopia, but then also going into South Sudan for the first time and and doing our need assessment as as to what our people need. We're very conscious about as diaspora not going in from a savior complex, as you know, if we've talked about the white savior complex, I think as diaspora sometimes we go back to our own communities, not realizing we have a lot of privileges and yet we perpetrate the same thing that um, the so-called humanitarian um, good doers do. So, yeah. Well, it will eventually happen. And I hope you will do exactly that. Uh, 
Well, I mean, there's a common experience, uh, not only among um, South Sudanese who were formerly displaced or refugees and were able to be resettled to a new country. I think it's a global experience for anyone who lives their place of origin and goes somewhere else where they're not familiar with the culture or the language and the way of doing things and just living in general, right? And I just wanted to, if you can share with us what that experience was like, like as a child coming to the U.S. here with your family, living here in the U.S., going through the education system, still doing it now, but also uh, being a professional and activism. So what, what were those early days and years like for you uh, as a newcomer here in the U.S.? Oh, that's interesting. I reflect on, I think, especially during this time of coronavirus, where a lot of us are, um, the universe is telling us to sit down and be humble and reflect on self and, um, and, and really take an inventory, right? And I had to go back and revisit my childhood and coming to the U.S. as a 10-year-old. Yes, do not count my age, people, <laughs> right? As a 10-year-old and how that journey became about. So for I think for many of us immigrant children that immigrate or that, that get resettled here is that we often do not get the conversation from our family, right? We're traveling, this is what's going on. You're just going along with the adults and then just trying to figure out what is this thing, right? So we were resettled in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That's home, that's where I grew up. And um, I, you know, it's silly because I share, it was the first time I saw snow, <laughs> right? And having to gravel, well, what is this thing, this fluffy white thing? Is it cold in the water? Um, but then going into the educational system, so I was put into the third grade right away because I, I left in the third grade in Ethiopia. And um, it was interesting because uh, two of my classmates were uh, two South Sudanese young men uh, from the Denka tribe. And they assumed that just because we were South Sudanese or we were Sudanese then that we spoke the same language. So they put me in that classroom um and uh, both of them they're no longer with us and they were phenomenal young men and uh you know they put me in the classroom and i said maale they say so we're like okay language barrier all right so right. we're going to use sign language or however children communicated so that was the first experience um of maybe biases that i can look at it from a race lens now but I truly appreciated the educational system um, and I'm even still fortunate enough to talk and I hope that, you know, uh, the, the principal that was at Franklin Elementary School is able to, is still alive. He was, he was pretty old then. I think he's, um, I, I put out a, a Facebook page uh, writing the other day looking for him just to say thank you because the way him and the teachers in that elementary school just wrapped their arms around all of us displaced children was just, they did things that educators are not allowed to do today, right? Take us to field trips to their homes to show us the American life, right? To show us what waffles are, what pancakes are, and what type of different food. And uh, some of the teachers would come and pick us up from our homes and take us to basketball games and, you know, take us to parades to really just experience this new life. Um, and so even when I talk to educators now, as, as myself being an educator, I said, you make it or break it for children that are immigrating here. Um, because those early years, if you show them discrimination and you show them the ugly side of America, that's what they're going to remember. 
and vice versa. So I was very fortunate enough that I was, the city wrapped its arm around all of us children that were there, not only South Sudanese, they were Russians, they were Bosnians, uh, Ukrainians at the time. And we all learned the same. Half of the day we were put in regular classroom and then the other half we were put in a English learning as a second language classroom. And so it was, it was interesting. Um, I went through middle school. I got, well, I got kicked out of ESL very fast. <laughs> I think I lasted two years and they kicked me off. <laughs> is, that, so is, that, I, is that because your English was already good? I, I actually, I, I came to the country with just knowing hello and hi. And so I think just merging myself, I'm a person that love culture. Uh, although I don't agree with assimilation, uh, assimilating, I agree in immersion. You can immerse yourself in a culture, but yet keep your own and, and, and right. just see what goods become of those two. Um, but yeah, I went to a middle school where a lot of uh, the students that I went to an elementary school were went to a different middle school. So the middle school I went to was uh, predominantly white. It was very few of us uh, children of color, whether we were African, Black American, or from the Asian country. And um, I basically was that black girl that did everything. <laughs> and even in high school, I was talking to some of my um, friends from high school recently. I was like, I bet you now that we're talking about race and all of these things. Are you guys referring me to that one black friend that you had? And are you guys giving yourself extra credit because I was African? No, 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 it's kind of like, I, I do have a black friend or something. Yeah, you're like, no, I grew up with a black, I had a black friend growing up. So that yeah. I was that black friend growing up for them. Um, but I mean, the earlier years were, were great, but, uh, as I became of age in rather later years of high school, that's, that's when I got introduced to American race, American racism. Uh, and then this new identity that was given to me as a black American young woman, right? Where I'm like, what does that mean? Because the educational system in America does not do a phenomenal job of teaching history. Right? The history books here are whitewash, uh, and they only teach you of who Dr. King is, Rosa Parks. They really don't go into who is Nat Turner, who is Marcus Garvey, and who is uh, Malcolm X, because again, they were looked at as enemy of the state. So I, yeah, in high school, I, I got on to starting to research my new identity of being a Black American woman and what does being called certain words mean to me and how is that going to reflect um, in my life as an adult, or whether I'm going to get opportunities or not have opportunities. Not, and then also at the same time, combating colorism, right, with our very own people as well. So again, I'm a very dark-skinned Black woman, or African-American African -American woman, or South Sudanese woman. Um, so being turned away by Black Americans and being and being told I'm too dark or I'm a feel Negro, uh, and then I'm like, what does that mean? So graveling with racism and colorism and and all of these things. So that was my early, yeah, my late teens and early twenties. Wow. I mean, you 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 just unpacked a lot in there, but you know, I'm glad. I know. Sorry. <laughs> it was a journey of experience and exploring at the same time and. You know, um, you know, myself, I came here uh, as an adult. I was already 21 when I came here to the U.S. and I actually came 
uh, for education, you know, straight university program here at Arizona State. And, you know, looking back at my experience right now, right, I mean, here in the U.S., I think, you know, it was very easy to, because I consider college and university environment, it's, it is a bubble. Let's be straight about it. It is a bubble that you you come in and you interact with students who are you know passionate about certain things. They want to learn. They want to explore the world. And sometimes they're welcoming of diversity, right? Because that's mm -hmm. what they're exposed to and that's what they're experiencing and they're hearing it in classes. Right? But then you know you get out of that environment. I mean, I was living on campus. You know, as an international student, you know, I was living. I came. I was living there and studying there and everything. And as I got out and started to interact with locals and East, as, as, as you said, you, know, you had to come to the realization that you were not just, you know, South Sudanese or African living here in the U.S. You know, there were these other identities that you, you had to explore and become aware of, right? Some mm -hmm. of them were out there for you to see and some of them were hidden, such as, you know, the history of certain, you know, African-Americans or Black leaders who were considered controversial that may not be, may not have been in your high school uh, curriculum, but then, you know, you had to go and explore because that's, and somehow that identity sort of affects you, you know, who you are and, 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 and what's your life and your experience here in the U.S. So that's very interesting. And that's one of the things for me that I'm also uh, coming across and I would definitely like to learn more about that and see how that might shape or is shaping my experience here, uh, not not just as a South Sudanese, but as an African or a Black person in the U.S. Uh, uh, Mo, I just I wanted to you know, ask you about your education. So you do have a BA in Human Relations, you have in International Peace and Conflict Resolution, and you're currently pursuing in conflict analysis and resolution. And you know, for us as South Sudanese, uh, who were formerly displaced and came to places like the United States and have the privilege and opportunities to realize our dreams, whether that is, you know, working in a profession or uh, having access uh, to education, to be able to get your education, right? For us, most of the times, we're the first ones in our families, right? We are, you know, first generation, you know, high school graduates, first generation uh, uh, university graduates and, Anything after that, whether that is, you know, going on and pursuing your master's or PhD. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, and because of that, because what I just say, we are always the first to go through that experience. There's something I've observed among our diaspora community that we usually pick certain majors or certain education fields that we would like to study. And talking about all these choices it sort of relates to our experience right back home. Like for example, just to use an example, I know a lot of South Sudanese guys, right, who have majored in political science. <laughs> I was going to say political science. Oh. Right, political science. And you said, why are they all, you know, uh, choosing political science? And then you realize where they came from, right? They came uh, from a country that is, you know, ridden with conflict and civil, you know, unrest. And, and when you look at that, I mean, it, it's very easy to see that it's a failure of, 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 of organization is a failure of leadership and so there's this hunger for us to say okay I'd like to know exactly what it takes you know or to establish good organizations in a country like mine right and that's 
That's why most people go on to choose political science mm-hmm. or economics for economic development uh, uh, in that sense. And so for you, what? how did your experience, right, being a South Chinese and a former refugee and coming here to the U.S., did that have an influence on how you chose uh, the sort of majors and academic programs that, that you're studying? Oh, most definitely, most definitely. And I think it's not just us, I think it's a collective humanity, right? Even for those that are Americans that have grown up in impoverished communities, often go for feels, or if you are a person that have been traumatized as well, we often want to be the saviors, like, oh, I've gotten myself out of this, now I'm gonna do this to go back and save. Um, So yeah, experiencing the conflict definitely had, in my uh, postgraduate uh, or my graduate, it's, it's definitely had a lot to do with it. So uh, my um, BA is in human relations, right? And so that for me was just like, okay, I, I didn't fully want to study um, psychology. And so I was like, but you know, I like the HR world. I like people. So I, I was able to be at a place where human relations was given, where I could study psychology, but then I also could study the HR piece, the human piece. Um, So that was a perfect fit. But then when I was thinking for grad school, I was like, and this is when we already had started the Nya Eden Foundation. And I was literally looking at global conflict, people that are in uh, conflict resolution or people that are in um, the international relations world, right? When I was in high school, I was like, I'm gonna get my degree in international relations. So (laughs) like everybody else. And I just also saw that that field was very saturated. Um, And so I was like, all right, what makes sense for me? Who am I? So I had to do those self inventory prior to going to grad school. Um, And I was like, all right, conflict resolution. It was actually um, one of the brothers that uh, reached out to me and was like, oh, hey, Maul, are you in? Uh, He went to Arcadia University and was like, oh, hey, I went to this university, this degree field the work that you're doing in the community, because I was a very big uh, community organizer when I was in Nebraska. I was involved in the political arena. I too was uh, active, especially during our referendum. And like you said, with Rebecca, she was in DC holding down uh, that office, the manager, and we were doing rallies every weekend and educating our people on voting uh, and how they should vote for self-determination. And uh, now that I think back of it, I was like, wow, that was some radical stuff. Uh, but with my, um, my, with my college journey, you know, I think I have to be honest with our listeners and, and not romanticizing this journey, right? Because we tend to romanticize it and we talk about the good things, we don't keep it real. Uh, and that becomes very crucial for those of us that are on this level where we have people looking at us that may find us an example and uh, for them to just see oh my god this person her trajectory her educational trajectory is just flawless but actually i dropped out of college wow i started my college career uh, at a community college and um there was some point where i was working full-time going to school but then i also had guardianship of my younger brother so i was a 21 year old with um guardianship of a 17 year old working full-time going to school and then having to deal with family members calling from home saying such and such is sick and all of these things so all of these were 
the beginning of my educational journey into higher ed. And, um, and even right after high school too, I didn't go to school right away. I worked at a meatpacking company to try to, you know, uh, have my grandma, save my grandmother eyesight, my dad's mother. And so a lot of people assume that you just leave high school and you go straight into college is not for most of us. So for those of uh, those that are listening that are young, reach out to those of us that are have done this and you'll hear our honest truth that whatever road you take as long as you are on that road still you'll get to the final goal so i dropped out of college and i was as, as a being a female right um there were a lot of family members that did not agree with me because they were like oh if you are not in school then you should rather you sh you should get married because those were my only two trajectory right. <laughs> how dare you leave the house how dare you leave the house if you're not in school? Right. And for me, I was like, I needed to do my journey. I needed to do that self-discovery journey because we came to this country. My mom was a single parent and my dad uh, died back home. And so we also got swept into the demographic of black mother, single parent, low socioeconomic, um, and, and all of these things. Um, so for me, it was like, okay, so sister girl, you're not going to go to school in that case, then you should get married. I actually had family members that did not speak to me until I graduated with my undergrad because the perception was that I was going to be promiscuous, going to have kids, going to have baby, daddy, mama, all of those, whatever, you know, um, notion that we have. And, but for me, I said, I did not know who I was, right? I am the oldest. And so I took on responsibilities of taking care of my younger siblings at a very young age. And then um, having to also help my parent process this American life, right? So I became that bridge between my siblings and my elders. And it was very problematic because in our traditional, the South Sudanese traditional, even the way that we formally greet ourselves, right? The newer way I'm known as the daughter of Biel, right? My father's name is Biel. So I'm known as Nya Biel. And then I'm like, okay, that's not fully my identity, even though it's a part of my identity. And then if I were to get married, I will be known as the wife of such and such, you know? And then if I have a child, I'm the mother of such and such. So I was like, but where am I in this? Where am I in this equation, in this formula? Where is Nyamal? Where is Mal, right? And so that's when I was like, you know what, forget school. I dropped out, had an opportunity to um, go stay with my cousin in New York. And I could, looking back now, I could say I was clinically depressed during that time. I was clinically depressed. Uh, even the way that I left, I uh, let go of a lot of things. I told my friends, oh, you know, my, my apartment was decked out. I was just like, oh, if you want the microwave here, come take the microwave if you want this. And looking back now, I was like, thank God I wasn't suicidal. Thank God I didn't have any self-harm thoughts because that's what happens. Depression comes in, in different ways. Even though I was happy, I, I put on the face of being happy, but something was missing. So uh, luckily moving to New York, I did two years of just traveling in and out of New York. And the first time I ever felt closest to being in the African continent was Harlem. That was Harlem 2009, right? Where there were all these Senegalese women, you know, all of the Africans and the black culture in Harlem was just, I was like, yes, I belong here. <laughs> this is right, where right, I belong. Right. 
So yeah, so I took some time off. I traveled domestically and internationally, and then I came back and was like, all right, it's time to finish my educational uh, journey. Uh, and then I moved to Nebraska and was able to start my undergrad uh, and then finish that. And then I came to uh, Arcadia University right away to do my master's. Yeah. Uh, I mean, thank you Mark, for sharing that. I mean, you're right in the sense that, I mean, sometimes we romanticize, you know, the journey of, 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 of our you know, professions, right? Whether it's having a steady job and growing or whether that is going through the education system, graduating from high school, straight on to a four-year college program and graduating from there and going to the workforce or going on for further studies. It's definitely not, right, a generalized story. I mean, for you, just if someone sees us talking or sees us in person and say, oh, these guys are South Sudanese, right? You know, about conflict in South Sudan, so they might have come here as refugees and they have a shared experience. Yes, we do. Uh, but in some ways, that story becomes very individual. Mm -hmm. Just to make a contrast between your academic journey and my academic journey, mine, uh, you know, I had gaps in my early education in the sense that when I was refugee with my family, you know, my family did not have the financial means or the option to enroll me right, in, in an Egyptian school, you know, to study mm -hmm. curriculum. The only option I had was to go through what you would call an informal education that was organized by the refugee, the UN organizations in Egypt, sort of prepare refugee children with these basic arithmetic and basic language skills, just in case they get resettled to an English speaking country like the US, Canada, Australia, they can at least pick up from there and, 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 and uh, integrate into the education system. So that's what I had actually uh, since 2001 all the way to 2011 the sort of education that I was having. It was just an informal education. But to go back to your point earlier about uh, coming to the U.S. and going through the education system and how you had teachers who did not just do their standard, you know, teaching, but they went above and beyond by, you know, being mentors and being, you know, the family figures for you guys, taking you around and exposing you to the culture. Uh, I was privileged and fortunate to have that as well. As much as it was an informal education for me early on in Egypt, I had teachers who were really dedicated. I mean, they knew this was no formal education that we would sit for a certain formal examination, get certified and say, you know, I have this middle certificate or diploma or high school diploma. It was just something informal, but they made sure whatever we learned was up to that par, right? Mm -hmm. Formal education was there. They made sure, like, for example, I can remember reading uh, works of Shakespeare, right? You know, Prince of Venus. Yes. <laughs> my book. Right. It was because of the teacher. She went and said, okay, you know, as part of the English and, and uh, the rhetoric program, I'm gonna make sure they learn about these books that they may not have an opportunity to do in this formal education. So again, uh, teachers and educators definitely pay uh, play a role, especially early on uh, in the students' lives and Definitely going through the education system is not always a straight path. For you, you had to take time off because you had to deal with some personal issues and family issues. For me, graduating from high school straight in 2013, you know, I was able, fortunate to get a full scholarship, you know, that afforded me to go on 
and, and do a four-year education program nonstop and graduated from there and then went on uh, for my master's program. So thank you again for uh, uh, saying that. And obviously for those listening to us, he has a, a straight path, but if you're determined and with resilience and persistence, you can always achieve your goals. It may take some time, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it will eventually happen. Uh, Mal, I want to talk about the Nya Eden Foundation. I was actually able to go on the website and browse briefly about the foundation, but for the purpose of this episode and for our listeners uh, who are tuned in or may listen to this uh, later, if you can just speak to us about the Nya Eden Foundation. Uh, I can tell that there's something there in the name, right? So if you can just say what is about the name, but also what are some of the objectives? that you're trying to achieve with this organization? So the Nya Eden Foundation started five years ago as an idea between Kutlil and I. And this was during around the time where South Sudan went into civil war and we were very helpless, right? And we all know that it's, it's not debatable anymore, but you know, that um, the people that were targeted first were the newer people and both uh, Kut and I are newer. And so we, we felt very helpless during that uh, first two, three weeks of the conflict. Um, and so we were just brainstorming one night, like what can we do, right? Not just only for our sisters or our family that's being targeted at the moment, but just for South Sudanese women in general, regardless of where you come from in South Sudan. So we're like, well, you know, let's do a broad drive. But then we laugh, right? We're like, okay, now we're, we're thinking like Hawajats. <laughs> we're thinking about our people, our, our female need bras when their basic uh, mass law hierarchy of need is not met of safety, food, clean water, you know, that basic level of mass law hierarchy. Um, and then we just continue brainstorming. All right, what can we do? And so we, when we were thinking of the name, we're like, okay, so in Tungnuara or even in Tungmanjang, right? NYA often referred to as a girl, all right? It's a, that prefix is, is for a female. And then uh, we thought of any literature, any word in any form of literature, whether it's secular or a religion, that could actually embody a place where a woman could be at peace, not only physically, but emotionally, spiritually. Um, and so, of course, you know, we went back to the original book, the, the Bible and, and Eden, right? And I imagine how we imagine uh, the Garden of Eden to be, it was a safe heaven. And so that's why we call the, our, you know, the foundation Nya Eden, right? Uh, a place where Nyal or Nyir could find peace in, in whatever aspect. Uh, so when we first started, it was basically, we did a lot of advocacy work. Uh, we didn't do programming and now we've just moved into our programming phase where, of course, um, the danger of a single story, as Chimamanda has said, um, it's, it's, it's crucial, especially here in the U.S. where for those of us, not only South Sudanese, but be having the responsibility of representing the African continent, uh, is how do we then write our own stories. Uh, and, and the famous saying is like the victor, you know, the hunter will always be the victor until uh, the prey learned to write its own story. And so that's what we were doing in advocating, making sure to uh, interrupt the narrative of who we are as a people, what we are, but then also tell our collective flight as women and how this government has been um, 
pretty much killing us, right? Not only physically killing us, but we're being killed emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, on all aspects, regardless of if you're Equatorian, you're Nur, you're Shuluk, you're Mandari, you're uh, any of the other ethnic group in South Sudan, because we're the one losing husbands, we're the one losing fathers, we're the one losing brothers, we're the one losing ourselves to uh, to this this thing. And so that's kind of where we sat. We were just like, all right, what can we do? And so we um, we were advocating on all forms, uh, whatever platforms that we had and just sharing our story, just sharing my story and Kuth sharing her story. And um, it, it helped a whole lot too, because Kuth ended up playing uh, one of the sisters in the movie, The Good Life. And uh, for her, she had another platform where she was able to echo the story of the South Sudanese woman and not just the ones that are elite, the ones that are invited to the tables that do not know the daily struggle. Although her and I do not know the day-to-day -day struggle of a South Sudanese woman that's on the ground, but being women, we have a sense of this is what our sister is going through. Um, so recently we, so basically our mission and our vision are to provide empowerment through education, peace building, conflict resolution, and the ultimate goal for us is self-sufficiency of making sure that we're teaching our sisters, our mothers, how to fish, not giving them a fish, like many organizations, many aid organizations are doing of not thinking about sustainability, right? We cannot have people being fed for decades and think that their children's mindset is going to change. So that's basically what we're doing with the Nya Eden Foundation. Here in the States, we are doing mentoring. We have a mentoring program, making sure that our youth, and it's not only South Sudanese uh, youth, young women that we're mentoring, we're mentoring other African young women that are dealing with the identity process that we've talked about before. Uh, and then also choosing your identity as being a woman. And uh, we went to Ethiopia in 2019. We were very lucky enough. So the, uh, us going to Ethiopia was our need assessment um, trip, but we were able to also go and take reusable menstrual pads that were donated to us by days for girls. And Ethiopian airline uh, sponsored us with two tickets. So we were very fortunate enough to be like, yo, we're like, it doesn't hurt to ask. So we wrote a proposal to Ethiopia and airline. We're like, oh, hey, you know, a whole bunch of South Sudanese take this flight back to Ethiopia, you know, and this is what we're doing. They jump on, right? They were like, yes, we love to see stuff like this happen. And um, so Mana Joak and I, Mana Joak is one of our nurse. So her and I went uh, to uh, Gambela. We went to Gambela where my life started. Um, and we were able to distribute uh, these reusable pads to a refugee camp, to a boarding school that had all the five ethnic groups that are in Gambela area. Uh, the young ladies were there. And then we took some to the prison system as well. We also did uh, reproductive health education and we did some conflict resolution, uh, peace building workshops as well. Mm -hmm. So um, that was, and we went in there with, and often when I talked in different platforms, we went in there with cultural humility. Although we're from the community, where we still had our privilege of being American and Westernized, we still have the privilege of being educated women and, and making sure, you know, when we go in there, we're, we were able and fortunate enough to work with 
Um, she's no longer the director of the boarding school because she's been promoted. And the former um, Otto, um, the commissioner, right? The Human Rights Commission, Thuk uh, Philip in Ethiopia, in Gambela region. And he was very much like, give us the layout. This is what's going on in terms of human rights. And that's when we were able to learn about the flight of the women in the prison system and how they do not have access to these uh, feminine products. It, it was an eye-opening journey to even be able to listen to the young women and saying, you look like us and you came back, right? Being able to interrupt that white savior complex and, um, and having our own women see themselves in us. And um, it was interesting because in a lot of the spaces we were in, we were being questioned, right, by the elders. So you're this old and you're not married? What's wrong? And when we talked to the women, they're like, yes, you know, we were being celebrated for choosing education. Right. And you know, we spoke to the young women we, and a lot of them were dealing with peer pressure. And we have to have that conversation of early childhood marriages as well. Right. Where some of them were like, well, our parents marry us off because we're a, a source of income. And some of them were like, well, it's peer pressure. All of my age mates, uh, you know, are married. And there was a young woman that was uh, 20 and she was graveling with that. And for me to just say, you know what, there's nothing wrong with both paths, but the only path that's going to take you out of poverty or to interrupt this cycle of poverty is choosing whatever education, the informal education you were talking about, choosing that, right? And if you're already married and have gone through the tradition, it's not giving up on that. And it's continuing, even you coming to school with your child. And we were fortunate enough also to have uh, one of the elder that was there. She was 39 years old and in the 11th grade, and she came to school every day to motivate these young girls. There was a, a young a woman there too. She had six children. She's 36. She was in the ninth grade. She came every day as well, uh, sometime with one of her child. And uh, she wanted to be a midwife because she's like, I've seen what it looks like to not have somebody there for you while you're going through this giving giving life moment where you would not only lose your life but then also the life that you're bringing into this world so she's like i also want to contribute in, in this light and for her she shared with us that she struggled um going through school from first grade all the way until eighth grade and her husband wasn't supportive until she graduated from the eighth grade and her husband was like well you know what you're already doing it so there's no need for you to stop so I will help in the house chores while you're in school. So uh, for her to even share that, my husband is now supportive of me uh, after seeing that I was able to struggle and fully, um, you know, get myself to where I'm at now. So it's, it's, it's been a journey. Wow, absolutely. I mean, that's, it's an incredible, it's an incredible cause and, and, and initiative that you guys are involved in, I mean, especially as it concerns women back home, right? Whether that is the border of Ethiopia and Gambela, Ethiopia or South Sudan, uh, you know, where women are still you know, marginalized, really. I mean, from my experience, because I grew up in that society, you know, mm -hmm. and who, who knows it better than uh, we are. And, you know, I, with all the things that are going back home, political, economic, or social, and just to see that, you know, time after time, women are being ex excluded, in the, you know, whether that has to do with issues, with peacemaking, you know, they are crucial members of our society. They, they have, right? And, 
and, and to see people discussing, you know, issues that affect everyone, not just men. In fact, actually they affect women more mm-hmm. right? and, and, and girls and elders. And just to see them being excluded from the table, from them, you know, sharing their perspective and see what the solutions might be. I mean, it's really saddening and it's, it's us doing ourselves a disservice. And, you know, I'm glad that uh, the Nyaiden Foundation and, from your experience and you guys in particular, not just being uh, co-founders of this organization that's trying to empower women, but the fact that because of your gender identity, right, you're females and what perspective looks like, the connection that you're able to create and, and share an experience. Uh, so thank you guys again for doing that and uh, wish you guys all the best. Uh, we, we are close to the end of our conversation. This has really been great. Uh, I just want to ask you, you know, for me as members of the diaspora, right, and this platform, which uh, brings members of our South Sudanese diaspora and engage on certain conversations, you know, I do have this conviction that if we left that place we call South Sudan or somewhere there uh, within the border and we came here, and regardless of all the challenges that we might have faced, a lot of us are thriving. Right. It's fair to say that a lot and majority of us are thriving and we want to, right? So we're getting access to education and, and we are educators like yourself. I mean, we have people in all the aspects of the American society or any other country that might be in Australia, Canada, or the U.S. Sometimes I wonder, I mean, what, what would it look like for us to take this experience, whether that's psychological, material, and back home to South Sudan and try to do something, right? And mm-hmm. something obviously it's for the betterment of the country, socioeconomically, politically. And I just want to ask you from your experience, and you're already doing it with your teammates with the, with, with the Guide and Foundation, but if you could just share for you what that go back and give back looks like and how are you doing it? What are your plans on a personal level in terms of back? and taking the experience that you've had here, all the privileges, give back and do something positive back home in South Sudan. It's, it's interesting that you should ask this because I'm having this conversation on another platform uh, with other Africans. And, um, and also thinking of it, most of us have been Westernized, right? Because we've been educated in a Western educational system. And um, so I consider myself an indigenous woman and uh, I was fortunate enough to connect with my indigenous in, indigenous ways of when I worked with the, our organization, a tribe, uh, one of the Native American tribe in Nebraska called the Ponca tribe in Nebraska. And like, I love them, right? And so um, for me to go back and on a personal note, and the reason why I chose to be in conflict resolution and peace building uh, in my master's and currently pursuing the PhD is that I literally looked around and I'm just like, we are indigenous people. We've always known how to solve our own conflict, right? And particularly women, uh, because I, I believe with the South Sudanese crisis, if you put us women together, we will come to an agreement faster than the men do. And this been the issue because the men have been the one at the tables having these talks. And I was disheartened when 2014, when I took my grandmother back to Ethiopia and I was able to go say hi to a couple of family members at the hotel where the talks were happening. 
and I'm, I'm assuming the talks were very heated and people were like rivals, right? Mm -mm. I saw of the opposite side having dinner together, drinking and 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 and, and kikiing. I was just like, what in the Black Jesus, Mary, Muhammad, Krishna is going on here, right? Buddha, Mundeng, right? I'm like, what in the Mundeng is going on here? Right. Um, and that's when I lost. Uh, that's when I was like, I'm, I'm done, right? Because I was politically involved. Because I thought, as as a young person, you know, going into those space and and coming in with different ideologies and making sure that we're a part of the system, even though we were we're facing age of discrimination right now, right? So uh, for me, I was just like, all right, I, I'm going to be on the side of humanity, regardless of what it is. And being able to not only do my own work and heal, because as as much as we've, this is, the conflict in South Sudan is a political disagreement that has been turned into an ethnic disagreement where we're being played by the elites. Absolutely. And I'm just gonna repeat that. We're being played, the average Jumudin, the average South Sudanese is being played by the elites while we are dying, their children are abroad. Their family are abroad and enjoying the life and the resources that should be divided to everybody in South Sudan. So that's when I chose, right? As much as, yes, we do have our grievances. I could, you know, a lot of people are like, how could you be friends with the Dinka? They killed us. I said, no, not all Dinka killed us and not all new people killed Dinkas or Equatorians. We also saved ourselves. And those are the stories that are not being told mm -hmm. of how, you know, we were getting calls from friends and saying, hey, if you have family here, please alert them. Something is going to happen of how, you know, uh, Shuluk families were smuggling Nuer uh, families or, you know, Denka families were smuggling Nuer families or Nuer families were smuggling Denkas and so forth. We have saved ourselves in this madness and we have to see our humanity in this. So for me, I said, the only way I'm able to personally contribute is by loving mm -hmm. and by giving, learning and taking the tools to learn conflict resolution from this academic sense, but then also adding into our indigenous way. And when I talked to my colleagues on some of the platforms I'm on, I said, as Janubian, as, as Africans, we use restorative justice. Indigenously, we use restorative justice. When somebody gets killed from a different community, the elders sit down. You know, maybe a cow is given, uh, that bone is mended back again. Um, and healings happen. So this newfound warfare, it's not us. It's not a Janubian way. It's not a South Sudanese way. It's not any of the other ethnic way, right? And I get it currently, yes, we're grieving, but that's part of the process. We have to grieve a lot. We need to be able to listen, to give ourselves space. Uh, because and find that we have a collective grief, right? Your loss is not any greater than my loss. We're both victims. We've both lost. Uh, so for me, this is my personal journey in, and my personal contribution to the South Sudanese uh, community are uh, me of just using myself, my life, the way I live as an example of how we could be, how we were. Uh, you know, 2011, I always think back to 2011 and how we were that united. We were a single unity. We were a single entity. 
And if we can get back to that by realizing that, you know what, we can solve our issues. I can say, hey, Madit, this is how I'm feeling. When 2013 happened, I've lost this, 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 and that. This is how I felt. And for you to give me the heart and the compassion to listen, and then vice versa, I would also give you that heart and listening with my heart, not listening to react. Um, so for me, it's just being able to go back and, and, and have these, hold these type of spaces, safe spaces for us to process our loss, for us to um, really look at ourselves and get back to seeing the human in all of us. Because I'm like, what is a Benka? That's just a name for me. But I see Madit, right? I see you as a person uh, that has potential to really change. If you thrive in a different part of the world and they say, Madit thrive, Madit is a South Sudanese, I too thrive. If you did something bad, I too did something bad because just the fact that you're South Sudanese. Um, so it's, it's just looking at it from that perspective, right? And so for me, I was like, oh, let me get into this conflict resolution field and see what I can learn and see what I can take back home. But then also adding uh, our way of doing it. I was one of those people that was very much against the way we wrote our constitution because I'm like, you already know how to solve our issues. Why don't we just go to the elders? Let's just write these now. Let's edit it the way we've always governed ourselves. And let's just um, bring it into the 20th century or the 21st century instead of borrowing from the Europeans and borrowing from the Americans. We already know how to govern ourselves. So, but hey, who am I, right? I'm just a young girl uh, in Philly, just trying to live, right? Wow. I mean, um, thank you all for that note of hope and humanity with regards to everything that is going on in our community, but also back home in South Sudan. And yes, to your point, I do agree. Um, somebody's playing us here, right? I do agree 100% that the country back home is 100% political, right? And, and, and the ethnic identity because of those, you know, historical incidences mm-hmm. is being used, you know, to serve uh, certain agendas of certain groups in South Sudan. and. I didn't mean this to be political, but these are issues by South Sudanese and for South Sudanese. So it's off the table, right? Yeah, listen, we have to keep it real, right? There, as much as there's, people, there's, mm-hmm. you have to keep it real. Even here in America, people are like, oh, politics and religion. But I'm like, that's, that's, those are the first things you know of people, right? If we if we're not talking about it, then the, continu- the conflict, the issue will continue. It's kind of like having a wound. If you're not going to open up that wound and let it breathe and have it heal, then how is it going to heal under all of that covering, right? So it has to be opened up. And if it's healthy uh, in, in a way, right? Because I'm sure people are going to listen to this and be like, how dare she say this? And how dare my deep say that? And that's okay. It's okay to feel that way. Um, it's okay to express that, right? Because not everybody's going to agree, but let's agree on our collective humanity. Let's agree that any life loss is a loss to all of us, one way or other, regardless. And that our cultures are so beautiful. So I like during this quarantine, I took it upon myself to learn that choli dancing, right? I'm like, yes. And, <laughs> and I, I, I practice my uh, my Denka dancing as well, right? Oh my God, but that's a calf workout. I'm telling you, I'm like, how are my sister jumping up and down this much? My calves are killing me. Um, 
but it's just learning each other way so that uh, and and that's one thing that's missing in group is like we don't we fear each other because we've been told to fear each other right and there's a simple story that um one of the young women i told her i don't know if you know of this legend called galois manuel or galois manuel i think that's how he's called apparently he's he's a legend that gets told to scare children away and so uh, my young my young sister uh, friend that was denka she was like oh no um because i was like oh yeah you know my grandmother said denka people eat people she's like no my grandmother told me newer people eat people i was like okay who lied to us right who lied to us somebody here world? is playing us right somebody here is playing us and that's what's going on right now in junoop and we just have to realize that um we have to choose us we have to choose humanity it's it's beautiful that we celebrate our differences but at the same time um we have to realize we're all being played straight up we're all being played and if you think you're not being played then that's an issue <laughs> that you need a process you heard um, it. you yeah. heard it you heard it Well, this brings us to the end of our conversation I and mean, this has been great and we could go on and on again uh but before I'll let you go uh if, is there a way people could anyone who would like to connect with you in the world of social media or emails how can people reach out to you Oh yes so I'm on Facebook as Mal Biel Trudel I'm also on Instagram as Mal Trudel um you guys can reach us at yaedenfoundation.org um yeah and also too on your platform I'm sure if people want to reach out and they haven't got me you could definitely give us uh, give them our information so mm-hmm. Instagram Mal Trudel Facebook um Mal Biel Trudel Twitter handle Mal Trudel Yeah, so I'm I'm on there, I'm on there and I'm very much we're looking for we're looking to collaborate. So if there's organizations in South Sudan, we don't want to go into reinvent the wheel uh, like how all these aid agencies. We go into collaborate with communities that are already doing work right there and then and we just want to enhance and, and not flip them. So, uh if there's organization women leaders in South Sudan from the other phenomenal women that I know that are doing the work feel free to reach out and see how we can partner up. Um we're looking at you know 2021 and seeing if we're able to you know with what's going on with coronavirus if we can come back home um and yeah i mean we're here we're here uh, i love to talk as you can see love to engage and making sure that we're starting these healing process because this is a healing process because now you know me i know you and next time if anything were to happen you know that's my sister and I'm like that's my brother and and we're learning this is humanity so um yeah. absolutely and this is the purpose of our Salsa Network podcast uh in Yamal uh thank you again for taking the time uh, to speak with us on the Salsa Network podcast we would love to see you again and have you on the program and as you just said i mean you're looking forward to collaborate so if there is anything that you're working on and if there's any way that the Salsa Network podcast and the media organization in general can help uh we hope that you won't hesitate to reach out uh thank you so much that was Jamal Tudiel on her journey from South Sudan to the US being an activist on immigration and displacement issues and helping women realize their potential and self-reliance through the Nya Eden Foundation This is Medid Yell with the Soso Network podcast. You can find this episode on Anchor FM and wherever you find your podcast. Happy listening and stay tuned for our next episode.